We apologise to the listener for the sound of Lance's voice at the very beginning of this tape. It's due to a technical error on the original recording. It clarifies itself within about five minutes. Now, if you look, if you open your Bibles at Zechariah 7 and 8, you will see from verse 1 that this message was given on the fourth day of the ninth month of Darius's fourth year. That is approximately 518 B.C. Two years had elapsed between this message contained in these two chapters and the former messages which we have been studying. And in those two years, the temple was already far on in its construction. In fact, they had only now two years to run before the temple was completed in 516. The city, however, whilst partly rebuilt, was insecure without either walls or fortifications. And it was a struggling community, beset with every kind of hardship, economic and political hardship and difficulty. It is interesting to note in this message contained in these two chapters, 7 and 8, that there is a far greater emphasis now upon the city, as if because the temple is nearing completion and that phase of God's purpose is uh, nearing its uh, uh, completion, its fulfilment, and the Lord now passes on to the next stage, which was to come in the days later of Nehemiah with the rebuilding of the walls of the city. You will notice in particular in chapter 8, the first eight verses, very real emphasis upon Jerusalem. We've already mentioned in previous studies the emphasis that Zechariah has in his ministry upon inward character. Haggai, who was his co-worker, his fellow uh, prophet in this work, had a much greater emphasis upon the outward, and the outward is important, uh, while, whilst Zechariah's main emphasis was upon the inward, and these two often go together. You find it again and again in God's Word. And then again, I think that um, uh, we ought to say that in this particular message, this stress on inward character is, is even more apparent. Another thing that we ought just to note is the directness of Zechariah's uh, ministry, his message here. You know, in the previous chapters, we've had great um, difficulty, I suppose we could say, humanly speaking, over his style, his, uh, his style of indire his indirect styles, all apocalyptic visions, all full of figure and symbol, which has got to be explained and understood. Now, in these two chapters, it's refreshingly direct. Ten times, Zechariah says in these few verses, thus says the Lord. Of hosts. It's as direct as that. There's no figure on symbol here. These, this is a clear-cut, straight message that really has no, has no need of being uh, interpreted as far as symbol and figure goes. <clears throat> now let's look at this message. In the first three verses, we find the occasion of the message. I've called it the occasion of the message, the problem, and the question. The occasion for this message was a very real problem. There came a deputation from Bethel in the north of the country. Uh, you look at the revised version, the American Standard Version, and the uh, revised Standard Version, and you will see there, instead of House of God, it has Bethel, which is correct. 
And there, is, there comes a deputation of leading citizens from this city of the north, this town of the north, to the priests and prophets at Jerusalem concerning certain fasts which had been instituted in the captivity. They had a real problem about these fasts. Um, now, a number of fasts had been instituted during the captivity, evidently not by divine command, not by the command of the Lord, to commemorate certain incidents over the destruction of Jerusalem and the burning of the house of God and the dispersal of the people. Now, if you want a, um, a few references so you can look up, here they are. For the fast of the fourth month, 2 Kings 25, verse 3. For the fast of the fifth month, 2 Kings 25, verse 8. For the fast of the seventh month, 2 Kings 25, verse 25. And for the fast of the tenth month, 2 Kings 25, verse 1. They all, these fasts were um, self-imposed by the, ex, the, the exiles uh, to commemorate the siege of Jerusalem, the destruction of the house of God and the city, uh, the murder of Gedaliah, the governor, and um, much else along that line, the actual final sacking of the city and taking of the people into captivity. Now this deputation comes. Their problem is this. <clears throat> they've come back to the promised land. They've returned from Babylon. Circumstances have radically altered, so greatly have they altered, that they want to know, should they continue with these self-imposed fasts? That's their problem. Should they, should they go on keeping these fasts that they had instituted to commemorate these incidents? That was the problem, and that was the question. Then we have the answer. And in, from verse 4 to verse 14 of chapter 7, if you'll keep it before you, we discover the answer is found within their own history. Zechariah is told to answer their question from their own history. These fasts were not divinely ordained, but instituted on their own initiative. And it was their own initiative, now mark it, which produced the situation which required the fasts. That is simply um, God's answer through Zechariah to the deputation. It was your initiative that caused the trouble. You, by your own initiative, produced a certain situation which, which brought the judgment of God upon you. And now, because of your initiative in this, the situation came which required these fasts, which you imposed upon yourselves. The Lord asks them, this deputation, one searching question. Was it for me that you fasted? In verse 5. Was it for me that you fasted? The very last part of that verse. Once again, we find we are back to the basic theme of this book, the supremacy and the centrality of Christ.
of the Lord. You see, really the Lord is saying, I mean, to many people, a fast would be a marvelous thing. Isn't that the right thing to do when there's trouble? When somehow or other there's been judgment, when there's been sin, when things have gone uh, awry, isn't it good to have fast? Wouldn't it be good now to remind ourselves once we're, whilst we're back in the land that we did sin by a, a fast every now and again? But you see, the Lord has asked a searching question. What is this fast? Is it for my sake? Is it for me? In other words, the Lord is asking a question which immediately exposes the true nature of this situation. We all have such a remarkable capacity for somehow offering sops to our consciences if we can avoid the real issue. In the Lord's estimation, these thoughts were a sop to the conscience while somehow or other enabling the people to evade the real issue. Now, what was the real issue? Just this. The absolute enthronement of the Lord in the life of his people. That was the real issue. And it was a costly one. You see, nothing is of any value unless it's of the Lord, unto the Lord, and uh, for the Lord. Um, it doesn't matter how apparently spiritual or right or useful a thing may be, if it has, it has no real value unless it's centered in him. Now to us a fast like this which seems to have outward cost attached to it, may be spiritual, it may to some be right, it may to others be even useful. But you see, the point the Lord is making is that it is not, is it really centered in himself? And that is the point. All departure, all error, all backsliding begins with the dethronement of God. All recovery, begins with the re-enthronement of God. Now, says the Lord, were these fasts that you kept, that you imposed upon yourselves in the captivity, were they an expression of your re-enthronement of me? Were they really, actually, um, something to do with your attitude toward myself? That really is what the Lord is asking. And if you look in verse 6, you will discover that they were not. The Lord implies here that they were for themselves. When he says, and when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? In other words, his attitude was that this fast, which apparently seemed so spiritual and so right and so good, was in fact a ruse to evade the real issue. Then the Lord puts his finger on something else. He puts his finger upon the necessity of inward character which follows his having his rightful place in the life of his people. It's not outward rights. It's not outward ordinances. 
It's not the gatherings, the outward gatherings of God's people. It's not even their outward behavior that counts, says Zechariah. What the Lord really looks for is godly, true godly and spiritual character. That's the thing that counts. And that godly and spiritual character only can be produced when the Lord is enthroned. When he's not enthroned, you get a form of godliness which denies the power thereof. You get a facade. You get something which is unreal. You get a false standard. Whereas in fact, behind it, when it's really analyzed, there is no real, actual character. Inward spiritual character. Now note verse 9 and verse 10. <clears throat> From verse 8 to 10, actually, the Lord is putting his finger on this matter. But verse 9 and 10, you have four things mentioned that um, reveal personal godliness. Uh, true judgments, they render true judgments, show kindness and mercy each to his brother, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against his brother in your heart. These things that are an expression of personal godliness. Now you see, evidently you can you could have a fast, and everyone can abide by the regulation and keep the outward ordinance, and yet all these things could be going on. And people were offering a kind of sop to their conscience in the outward uh, form of gathering together and keeping an outward ordinance, whilst in fact evading the real issue of personal godliness. Now there can be no godless, godlikeness, unless God is within. But it is no good just having God within. God has got to be sovereignly within. In other words, he's got to be sovereign in within. When God is on the throne, then a godlike character begins to be produced in a human life. That's so personally and it's so corporately. And it is this very thing that the Lord is putting his finger upon here. This cry for the Lord's rightful place in his own and for true inward character had always been the, the theme of the former prophets. If you look at verse 7, verse, the last part of the verse, were not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? Verse 12, last part of the verse, and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. You see, it had always been the cry of, the, of God through his prophets. That, that, that this, this simple theme, that the Lord might have his rightful place amongst his people, and that there might be true spiritual inward character. These are the two basic requirements of the Lord. And it was their refusal uh, in the past to recognize uh, this that had resulted in their dispersion and their desolation and their spiritual vacuum 
that they were experiencing. From verse 12 to verse 14. Now, will you notice one or two very interesting things here? Um, first, verse 11, they refused to hearken, turned a stubborn shoulder, stopped their ears that they might not hear, and, verse 12, they made their hearts like adamant. It is very interesting. They refused to hearken. That is, they refused inwardly to take in what they heard. They refused really to listen. Hearken. Not just um, listen to the words, but actually uh, take note of what was being said. Study it. Really attend to what was being said. This word, turn a stubborn shoulder, I think in the um, revised version, it is to pull away the, the shoulder. Am I right? Yes, pull away the shoulder. The word really can be best translated by our English phrase, to give the cold shoulder. The people were giving the cold shoulder to God, that's all. Giving the cold shoulder. Oh, they said, the Lord was saying, I want my place. They were giving a cold shoulder. Don't take notice of that. As long as we keep the, the, the rites, and we make the offerings, as long as we sort of, you know, keep together and so on, that's all right. Giving the cold shoulder. They were stopping their ears, as we sometimes say, putting cotton wool in their ears. They wouldn't listen. They were stopping their ears up so they couldn't hear. Their hearts were like stone, adamant, hard stone. This was the attitude of the people in history. And it was because of this very attitude, this refusal to give the Lord his place, that all these judgments of God had come upon them. So then, this is the unchanging lesson that um, God gives through Zechariah. When we dethrone the Lord, spiritual character always deteriorates. Do listen to that. When we dethrone the Lord, spiritual character always deteriorates. If you have noticed in your life a deterioration of spiritual character, if you have noticed in someone else a deterioration of spiritual character, you can always be sure it is because the Lord has been dethroned. Somewhere or other, the Lord's rightful place has been taken away. His rights in that life, or in your life, have been compromised. They've been challenged. Always it begins there. And when, when spiritual character deteriorates because the Lord's been dethroned, bondage is not far away. Now, you, there's an infallible law. I've seen it, not once, but I can say hundreds and hundreds of times. It's happening in some lives in this room. I wouldn't mention you, but I know in some lives the thing's happening. You've watched it. A dethronement of the law, followed by a deterioration in spiritual character. And finally, you see that life go into bondage. They become desolate. They become barren. They become devastated. They become like a desert. Always it is the same. Bondage is the outcome of it. Now this is the lesson that God gives the people from their own history. You see. And he is really saying the answer to this situation is not mere fasting. 
It's not to try and bring in additional things, you know, like some people do. They, they sort of say, now, shall I try and do something? They try to get us, they, may, they offer a sock to their conscience. They, they know, they can see that somehow or other they're, they're beginning to, to deteriorate. They're frightened in one way of losing out with the Lord. But, but, and this is the point, they are not prepared to come to grips with the actual situation. They're not prepared to face the real issue. What is the real issue? It's not fasting. It's not fasting. The real issue is the absolute lordship of Christ in your life. Sometimes it's our heart that's going to dictate to the Lord. Sometimes it's our will that's going to dictate to the Lord. Sometimes it's our mind that will dictate to the Lord. The Lord says, I won't have any of that. I won't have any of that. I demand the throne in your life over your mind, over your will, over your heart, your, your emotion. The throne. That's all. The Lord will have nothing less than that. He demands the throne. If you won't give him the throne, the Lord stands back. You're still saved. You're still a child of God, as these were in their history. But you see, the inevitable comes to pass. It's got to come to pass. It's a spiritual law. You cannot stop it. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you reap of the flesh corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you reap of the Spirit everlasting life. It's a law. There's no good blaming God. No good saying that God's severe. It's a law. So the whole point is this. God says, if you want to know anything about inward character, if you want to know happiness, for instance, if you want to know peace, if you want to know rest, if you want to grow and all the rest of it, you've got to give me the throne. Give me the throne. Now, I don't want to fast, says the Lord. Yes, oh yes, I'll have any number of fasts if you give me the throne. But I don't want fasts instead of the throne. Now, that's the answer of the Lord to this deputation. Is it then a question of fasts or my enthronement? I'm not interested in your fasts, if that's the point. And you know, this is not only true personally, it is true corporately. And church history has shown it again and again. <clears throat> when there's been a dethronement of the Lord, God's people's, the spiritual character of God's children corporately has deteriorated. And with that deterioration has come captivity and bondage. They've gone into a Babylonian state of affairs. And then, so often all kinds of additional things that God never intended and never divinely instituted come in. And today we, our, our, the Christian scene is cluttered up with all kinds of things you won't find in the New Testament. Self-imposed, self-instituted things which have been brought in because of the state of affairs amongst God's children. And now we might well say when we come back, shall we continue with this? Shall we continue with and the Lord's real point is this. <clears throat> Why was there a deterioration in the first place? Because I was dethroned. So don't try to answer it with this and with that and with the other. Put me back in my place. Give me back the throne. And then 
will sort out the rest. Now, when you come to chapter 8, and the first eight verses, <coughs> the Lord moves on. He's given them an, um, their answer through their own history. Now, I've entitled these next eight verses, The Promise of Restoration, Increase, and Glory. Now we find that in grace, the Lord says that he's returning to Jerusalem. He says, now, did you fast to me? No, you didn't. But it's all right. You've returned to the land. You, you've, you've made a big sacrifice. You've come back. Now I want to tell you, I'm returning to you. You've returned to me. I'm returning to you. Now this is again is the theme of, of Zechariah's ministry. Return unto me and I will return unto you, says the Lord. So now says the Lord here in these first verses, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I will, re I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Now, really, this is the most wonderful promise of the Lord. You see, <clears throat> this jealous love of the Lord would not let them go. But in, not only would it not let them go, it would hold on to them till it had perfected them. And it would not only do that, but it would destroy their enemies. I have returned, he says. Uh, he says, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous with great wrath, not over them, but over their enemies. It's the most wonderful picture of the Lord in grace. The, 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 their past history has been one of backsliding. It has been one of dethronement of himself, of rejection of himself in many ways. But now he says, my jealous love is of such a nature that I have not let you go. I'm returning to you. And um, he says that he would dwell there again in the midst. He would come right back and be there in the midst. And then you've got the key, listen. And Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord, the holy mountain. Now have you got the connection? I will dwell there, and Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord, the holy mountain. In other words, you see, once the Lord's back in his place, spiritual character. Instead of this city which was a city of compromise, of lies, of mixture, now it is the city of reality, of truth, absolute truth. Now instead of unholiness, uncleanness, sinfulness, evil, now it is the holy mountain. It's to be called the holy mountain. So really it is the most amazing picture and I wonder really um, whether any of us realize what it means to be jealously loved by the Lord. Sometimes, you know, when the Lord's pursuing us, we get angry almost. We wish that he would leave us alone. But you know the jealousy of God's love is one of the most wonderful things in the whole of the Bible. Because in the end, it will be our ultimate salvation. That the Lord has set his love upon us is a miracle. <clears throat> and that his love is a jealous love which will not let us go is something that you and I just cannot understand. <clears throat> 
Why does the Lord hold on to us in the way that he does? Why sometimes when a backslider goes out almost with oaths back into the world, the Lord will sometimes wait 20, 30 years, but he never lets them go. And they always get brought back in the end. Why is it? Why doesn't the Lord say, well, all right, go? We're such difficult people. Such unlovely people. Such ugly people. Why doesn't the Lord finish with us when he sees that we're just playing things? But he doesn't. That's the guarantee of our ultimate salvation. The jealous love of the Lord. I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. Then um, the Lord paints a wonderful picture in verse 4 and 5. <clears throat> I don't know whether you've noticed it as you've read these chapters. A picture of security and peace. <clears throat> it's a picture of people of ripe old age who have grown old with contentment. And there they are in the street, sitting down with their old staffs, their sticks in their hands. And they're watching their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, play in the open squares and the streets. Now, of course, to all of you, I suppose it doesn't mean much. But you see, remember this. In the day when this message was given, there were very few old people. Most of them had died in the war. There were very few little children that were safe. Remember, in those days, not to have great walls around the city was a terrible thing. They were never sure when some awful power would suddenly sweep upon them. No radio. There was no uh, means of, uh, of uh, alarming the people, warning the people of something on the way. Suddenly, out of the desert, they would come, and there was no means of stopping them. The whole place could be laid to the ground in an instant. And you see, Jerusalem had no walls, no fortifications. So this was a promise that the remnant found hard to believe. Old people growing old. Well, in those days, it wasn't uh, such a wonderful thing. It wasn't such a known thing. It was a rather rare thing for people to grow old peacefully. And to see, to watch their children playing in the streets with no threat of war, with no threat of famine, with no th threat of trouble lurking there. It was the most amazing picture. And that's why the remnant found it so hard to believe. You see in verse 6, thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvellous in the sight of the remnant of this people in these days, should it be marvellous in my sight, says the Lord of hosts. This word marvellous is incredible, hard, hard, difficult. If it's, if it's marvellous in the sense of it being far too incredible to believe that people just could not think that such a thing was going to happen. But the Lord says he's going to do it. It's not incredible in his eyes. It's not impossible with him. Now, so much of this prophecy, in actual fact, underlies Revelation 21. I just leave that with those of you who want to follow that up. And that is a, a pointer to the real spiritual meaning behind uh, this uh, prophecy, this promise of restoration, increase, and glory. Then in the next verses, from verse 9 to verse 17, we have the challenge to go on with the work of rebuilding. This whole passage from 9 to 17 is reminiscent of Haggai chapter 2. In fact, in verse 9, it would seem that Zechariah refers to Haggai 
Let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets. So it would seem that he was um, probably referring to his fellow worker, Haggai, as well, especially if you look back to Haggai 2 and see this very passage um, uh, put in another way. It's the same idea. Now, Zechariah is saying, in the light of the preceding message concerning his the Lord's returning to Jerusalem in jealous love and his determination now to restore and to increase and to glorify, he challenges them not to fear but to be strong in the work of rebuilding. Remember, the, the rebuilding work was halfway through two years off completion. So you get it in verse 9, first part, let your hands be strong. And then again in verse 13, the last part, fear not, but let your hands be strong. And then again, verse 15, the very last part, fear not. So here's this great challenge. The Lord's with you. The Lord's come back. The Lord's in the midst. Now then, don't slacken off. Go on with the work of rebuilding. He reminds them, in, from verse 9 to verse 13, if you will read it, that before the actual building work had started, there had been no fullness of blessing. Do you remember Haggai chapter 2? Nothing had happened. But the day the actual building work started, the blessing had started. And so again, you see... Um, you've got it here, um, verse 9, the last part. Since the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. Verse 10, for before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety, and so on. Verse 11, but now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, says the Lord. Verse 12, for there shall be a sowing of peace and prosperity, and so on. You go through, you find it's blessing. It's just a re-emphasis of the lesson that Haggai had already given them. That now they'd started the actual building, the blessing had started. Now, says Zechariah, <clears throat> it's not only started, but it'll go on increasing and increasing and increasing. Then go on with the work. Don't let your hands get weak. Don't be disillusioned. <coughs> Don't be disappointed. Don't be put off. Get on with this work of rebuilding the house of God. Get on with it. And uh, then again you'll find that um, this was an encouragement not only to go on with building, because the Lord was determined to carry through his purpose. Again he re-emphasized that in verse 14 and 15. But he also stresses the need of inward character in verse 16 and 17. The Lord really is saying this. He does not just want a temple with surfaces. He wants personal godliness as well. Now, you know, we can all hide in the corporate. It's the easiest thing in the world. You come to meetings. You contribute, you see. You, you sort of um, just merge in with the rest. And uh, if you feel that there's something on, you get an idea what it is, and you just say what everyone else is saying. Say. Just merge in. This is the great danger of the corporate. And with the accent of the, uh, on the corporate, which is so necessary, you had the danger of excess. 
Now, Haggai never, never, ever emphasized the need for personal godliness. You see. His whole stress was the other side, getting on with this work of, of building the actual house so that the services and everything else could be reinstituted. Zechariah adds this note to the necessity of building. We've got to have inward and personal character. It's necessary. Then, in the last part of this um, chapter 8, from verse 18 to 23, we, um, I've entitled it, The Promise of God that the Fasts should be turned into Feasts. Now, rather like some messages, the Lord comes back at the end of this message um, to the question. Um, he, he, it seems as if the Lord has strayed rather from the question. The question was, should we continue with fasts? Somehow the Lord's got from that um, onto the question of his enthronement, his rightful place, inward character, what he's going to do with Jerusalem, its uh, restoration, its increase, its glory, the, 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 the necessity of going on with the building. Now the Lord comes back to this question that was originally asked and which was the occasion for this message uh, should we continue fasts, these fasts? Now, this is the Lord's actual answer to this. He has already pointed out from their history that he didn't want the fasts. He wanted them to re-enthrone him. Now he says that he would so wonderfully work in grace and power that their self-imposed fasts would be turned into feasts of joy and gladness. You've got that in um, verse 19. The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth month, the fast of the seventh month, the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. He's going to turn them into feasts, fasts into feasts. Now that, only the grace of God could do a thing like that. To turn something which was an evidence of departure from his mind into something which is an evidence of his grace. Grace abounding. Isn't that wonderful? It's the way sometimes God turns scars of sin into the most beautiful thing in our character. How he does it, he only knows. But you know he does it. Somehow or other, you take a man like David who sins with Bathsheba and that terrible scar of sin becomes forever after one of the most wonderful expressions of God's grace and mercy in Scripture. So it has always been with the Lord. You see, now he says, I'm going to work so wonderfully. These fasts are going to be turned into feasts. And then we're given the most marvelous and graphic picture, one of the ones I find the most wonderful in the Old Testament, of the nations coming to the Lord through the church. Verse 20 to 23. <clears throat> it was never fulfilled, never fulfilled, uh, through the Jewish nation before Christ. You're, I suppose you all know this. I hope you've all read it. Otherwise, it must be very uninteresting to you. I'm taking it for granted that you've all read this chap these chapters. Um, you see, when in verse 20, the, the people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favour of the Lord and to seek the Lord, because I'm going. 
Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This is one of the most wonderful and graphic pictures in the whole of the Bible of the nations coming to a knowledge of the Lord through his church. You know, it, it was, as I've said, it was never fulfilled in the Jewish nation before Christ, but at Pentecost and after, it began to be fulfilled. You know, it was through Jews that the gospel was first preached on the day of Pentecost, when people of every nation were in Jerusalem. And then through those Jews, it spread to every corner of the globe. To me, it's the most wonderful thing. I know, of course, it may be to some spiritualizing it. But now, the whole world, through the Jew, has come into a knowledge of God. Why, when I think of Abraham, when I think of Moses, when I think of David, when I think of Hezekiah, when I think of others like Isaiah, they're all Jews after the fall. And yet I've come to a knowledge of God through them. Isn't that amazing? It is as if the whole world has come and caught hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, we will go with you. We know the Lord is with you. Do you know that even our Lord Jesus was a Jew after the flesh? The whole world has come into the salvation of God through a Jew. This scripture has been fulfilled. But of course, supremely, it is a picture of those who are the sons of Abraham by faith. Not those Jews who are Jews outwardly, but those who have the inward circumcision of the heart, who are Jews inwardly, all of us. And you know this wonderful picture of the beauty and the presence of the Lord, so apparent in us, that the unsaved world will hang on to us in order to come to Christ. Well, I'm afraid that's not happening, is it? And, of course, the reason is that the beauty and the presence of the Lord is not that apparent in us. But, you see, that's what the Lord wants. That's what the Lord here promises. Oh, for such an experience in these days that the beauty of the Lord and the presence of the Lord should be so apparent in us that people in our offices, people in our homes, will, will not just sort of quietly say, well, but they'll come take hold of us. And say, we're coming with you. You see, the idea of this is a most amazing picture. Someone catching hold of the skirts of him that is a Jew. What does that mean? The robe of him. Well, you know how I won't demonstrate on Ron, but you know what would happen when I want to say something to Ron, and he's going away. I get hold of him. I say, look, son, 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 son. Or if someone's going out, I catch them, and I say, oh, just wait. Or if you want to emphasize something, you get hold of a person's lapels, you know, and you sort of say, look. Yeah, I know it's not quite polite, but you know what we do, seeing you don't do it quite so much. The Jews do. Get hold of someone and emphasize something. Now, the whole point of this picture is that it's ten to one. You know, we often say ten to one, don't we? Ten men of different tongues getting hold of one Jew and getting hold of him and saying, Look here, we're insisting on a hearing. We're coming with you. Don't you try and rush past. We've got hold of you. We're coming with you. 
because we've heard that the Lord is with you. Don't you think that that's the key to evangelism? Don't you really think that that is the heart of the matter as we find in the book of Acts? That somehow the beauty and the presence of the Lord was so apparent in his people that everywhere people, as it were, took hold of them and said, we're coming with you. We've seen why is it that so few people come to the Lord? Because they don't see the beauty and the presence of the Lord in us, in our offices, in our homes. Oh, that it might be so, of course, there will always be rejection and there will always be derision and there will always be antagonism, but oh, the damage done by Christians, by us Christians, the unloveliness, the ugliness, the apparent spiritual poverty of our lives that somehow or other the world sees and then the world says, I don't want anything of it. If that's all they've got, I don't want anything of it. No, this promise of the Lord, fasts into feasts, was to be one of rejoicing because the beauty and the presence of the Lord was so apparent that the Lord himself did his work should that not be so? Uh, was it not in fact what Paul was getting at when he said, when an unbeliever shall come in your midst, he shall fall down on his face and shall worship an unsaved man, worshiping, worshiping, and shall say, God is here. That's it. So the Lord says, he will turn their fasts into feasts of incredible joy. Now, you know, if you and I are not making that kind of impression upon people, there is cause for godly sorrow in our hearts. There's something wrong when an impression's not made like There's a blockage somewhere. Something, uh, somehow or other, uh, the, the light's not shining. The light of the beauty and the presence of the Lord's not shining through us. And it's cause to ask the Lord. Now shall we pass on then um, to the next great section of Zechariah from chapter 9 to 14. We shall only be able to take the first subdivision this evening. Um, I've entitled this ne next and last um, uh, section of, of Zechariah, The Coming Messiah, His Saving Work, His Kingdom, and His Glory. And it covers from chapter 9 right through to chapter 14. Now, one or two just general notes about this whole section. We've already dealt with the difficulties that these chapters 9 to 14 present concerning authorship and date and so on. So I'm not going to go back over that. I'm only too glad to leave it. Uh, we, all we need now to say is that their message is completely unaffected by those problems. The message in, the, in, in these chapters stands uh, entirely free of any... Uh, uh, need to know uh, who is the author or, or the date. And another thing we ought perhaps just to say is that these chapters are apocalyptic in style again. The background and detail are therefore vague and often mysterious. But the overall theme is apparent. Now that's very important. Uh, a lot of trouble comes when apocalyptic uh, uh, literature um, is over, 
over-interpreted. <laughs> you must get the actual theme um, of these chapters and keep to that. It is on that theme that we're meant to concentrate. Now, the temple had long been uh, rebuilt. Now, we don't know the date of it, but it's probably somewhere around 445, 450, 454, 445 BC. It means that the, the temple had been completed for some 70 years, at least. The walls were probably in the process of being built. There's no mention of construction of any kind. In fact, these chapters have seem to have no actual bearing on local conditions at the time or local events of the time. Um, our eyes instead are wholly fixed on the future and on the coming Christ. It's as if now... Um, the Holy Spirit has said, now, we've dealt with all the, 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 the coming of Christ, you see, uh, the, uh, the coming of Christ as, as related to the recovery of the temple and the city and the land. Now, we want to focus our attention upon the coming of the Lord himself. So, these chapters are wholly taken up with the coming Christ. It would seem that, the, that these chapters consist of a, quite a number of short prophecies uh, and they fall into two main subdivisions. The first, um, Zechariah 9 to 11 and the second, Zechariah 12 to 14. Now, now we'll just deal with this first section. If you will turn to Zechariah chapter 9, again you will discover great variations in your version because there has been uh, not, uh, not a little difficulty over the translation of these um, chapters. First of all, chapter 9 from verse 1 to verse 8. We have the destruction of the surrounding foes of God's people. In these verses, we have all the neighbouring enemies of God's children described. Um, Damascus, Tyre, Sidon, Philistia, and so on. And then we are told, or we're given to understand, that before the Messiah was to appear, they will all be destroyed or swallowed up. Now, this has all come to pass. Tyre, for instance, Alexander the Great, um, uh, destroyed Tyre, it had managed to withstand every single marauding army for many centuries, but Alexander the Great built a mole out, uh, half a mile out to, to the island, it was, you know, Tyre was built on an island half a mile out in the sea, but Alexander the Great built a mole out to it and completely destroyed it, sacked it and uh, raised it to the ground. Um, Sidon as well, and also the the prophecy here concerning Philistia becoming a mongrel people was most remarkably fulfilled in the days of Christ. When he appeared, the Philistines had completely merged in with the Samaritans and the Jews and had become literally a mongrel people, as the Edomites had as well. You remember the Idumeans, Herod was an Idumean, half Jew, half Edomite. They'd become mongrel peoples, merged in with God's people and sort of semi-Jews, 
I can't explain it any other way. The Pharisees, of course, treated them with absolute contempt as something that was uh, nothing short of an abomination. Well, now, in this prophecy, we have this um, description of the destruction or the swallowing up of all the surrounding foes before the coming of Christ. This took place. Then, from, from verse 9 to verse 17, we have the coming Christ described as both King and Saviour. Now, of course, this is one of the most wonderful prophetic passages of Scripture concerning the Lord Jesus. And it is a prophecy of Christ's coming, not of his birth, or of his life, or of his ministry. Isaiah and Micah and others have prophesied of where he was going to be born, of how he was going to be born, of his life and of his ministry. This prophecy begins with his coming to Jerusalem. And if you look at Matthew 21, verse 4 and verse 5, was fulfilled on what we now know as Palm Sunday, the day the Lord Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on the colt, the foal of an ass. Now, that was at the end of his ministry, at the end of his 33 years of life, when everything was completed and he stood on the threshold of his great and unique work, the work of our salvation. And this prophecy is a prophecy of Christ's beginning the work of our salvation. He's coming to a, into Jerusalem to accomplish our salvation. Now, do note the description that is given, because it's a very remarkable one. First, in verse 9, his triumphant righteousness. Now, in the authorized version, the revised version, and the American Standard Version, you have this. Um, it's put like this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just. The Revised Standard Version puts it triumphant. Thy king cometh unto thee triumphant. He is just. Now what is the idea? Seems to be a, a difference, doesn't there, between he is just and triumphant? No. You see, the difficulty is the original. The Hebrew means justified or vindicated. The idea is of, of an absolute triumph. A triumphant righteousness. Now this is the whole point. When the Lord Jesus came into Jerusalem, his righteousness had been proved in 33 years. And he had only a little while been, before been transfigured as the divine seal upon his proved righteousness. Tried and proved. Now Christ comes into Jerusalem to accomplish the work of our salvation if his righteousness was not absolutely justified and vindicated, there could be no work of salvation. So here he comes, triumphant, but triumphantly righteous, absolutely justified, vindicated his righteousness without spot and without blemish. 33 years in a sinful world. 33 years of buffeting. 33 years of temptation such as all humanity is subject to and not a sin. But not only was he sinless, he was 
perfectly righteous. In other words, the Lord had not only negatively managed to withstand sin, he had positively had righteousness perfected. So he went up into the Mount of Transfiguration and was transfigured in glory. He was the only man who's ever been transfigured in glory because he was righteous without sin. God could take him as a man into heaven at that point. He got to the place where Adam never got to. Now, this prediction is of his absolute righteousness proved and sealed, the basis for his saving work. Had you ever thought of that? Behold, thy king cometh. He is just. And then the next phrase is his saving victory. Again, the authorized version, revised version, and American Standard Version says, having salvation. Um, the revised Standard Version puts it this way, victorious. Now again, why is there the difference? Having salvation and victorious. Again, it's a difficulty in the original. It with this victory, this sa safety, this having salvation, refers to his overcoming. He saved himself. If you look in the margin of the authorized version, you'll see it says saving himself. He has overcome every single difficulty, and by his victory, he is bringing us salvation. It's again a picture of his work and of the cross. He became our saviour through his victory. He was delivered uh, on the cross. You see, when you see the Lord Jesus, the idea of his salvation is this, that he endured the cross. He endured it. He didn't give up. If the Lord, if the devil could have only got out of the Lord one thing upon enough, it would have been the end. But he overcame for us. He went through Gethsemane. He went through the judgment, the trial. He went through the darkness of the cross. He went right through and endured. And if he hadn't endured, there would have been no salvation for you or me. His victory was our salvation. So when the Lord cried out, finished, it was a, it was a cry of triumph. He got through. And he got, he won the thing that he'd set out to obtain, our salvation. It was accomplished. So this is again a most wonderful description of Christ. He victorious. Then again, you have his humility, verse 9. Lowly, riding on a colt, the foal of an ass. We have here described his lowliness and his meekness. Now you don't usually, usually associate lowliness and meekness with a king. Not a triumphant and victorious king. But this is God's king. Absolute meekness. Absolute humility. It is an amazing picture. He doesn't come on a war horse. He doesn't come on a charger. He comes on an ass. Now, I'm not being irreverent, but you see, it's rather like a, um, a cabinet minister going in a rolls. And a more ordinary person has a Ford, a Ford Consul, or something along that line. In the East, if you're very wealthy, very wealthy indeed, even today, you ride a steed, and now the finest Arab stock. Uh, if you're not quite up to that, if you're not a sheikh, then you, you ride a camel. Uh, but if you're one of the ordinary sort of, sort of not dirt poor, but not very rich, you ride an ass. 
You often used to see them with their legs almost touching the ground, sort of going up and down as they go out with their legs coming backwards and forwards as they go along. I've often, it's imprinted on my mind because you used to see so many. Now the Lord chose to come into Jerusalem on an ass. In other words, you see, there was, no, there was no pomp, there was no grandeur, there was no majesty. His majesty was in heaven. It was intrinsic. It was within him. Why did the people pour out crying Hosanna? Why did they cut down the palms off the trees? Why did they fling their robes in front of him? This was a comic sight. A king on an ass. You know that uh, um, in the old days of Victoria, um, of course, the British uh, consuls and uh, anyone who represented the British government, I was only just recently reading a book of last year, only as recent as 1935, they had always to do everything in the grandest style. Always the best horses, always the very best rooms, always a large number of servants, even when they went out to watch Burns. They had to take seven or eight servants at least with them, otherwise the Tibetans wouldn't be impressed. Now, it's a fact with the East. In the old feudal system, if a person didn't have all the very best, it couldn't impress anyone. So you can see the innate majesty of Christ when somehow that compulsive power of his personality caused everyone to fling, to take off their robes and fling them on the ground in front. It wasn't a worked-up scene. It wasn't some trumped-up communist mob, sort of chanting, all arranged. No, it was spontaneous. You see? The people hacked down the palms, fronds off the trees, they, they ripped off their robes, they flung them on the ground, and really, truthfully, I'm not being blasphemous. It was almost a comic sight. A king on an ass. But you see, it revealed that he was a man of peace. Absolute humility. Then again you have his dominion described in verse 10. Um, he shall create, verse 10 it says, he, the verse, he shall command peace to the nations, his dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. A wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus in the end, uh, creating peace from end to end of the world, uh, ruling the whole universe. Then verse 11, you have his covenant. Um, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your captives free from the waterless pit. This waterless pit was the pit that was often prisoners were thrown into to be forgotten. Uh, in some of the dungeons there were black holes, literally, where there was no water, no light, no nothing, where when someone weren't, they just wanted to forget them altogether, uh, they just bundled them off into there and they were forgotten, literally. They died in the waterless pit. And the idea here is that we are in a waterless pit, put there by Satan, really, by the world. And now the Lord says, because of the blood of his covenant, he will free the captives from this hopeless situation. He'll get them out of it. And, um, of course, the blood of my covenant uh, refers to the Passover, but also it refers to the new covenant. If you read Matthew 26, 28, you will see the Lord speaks of the blood of this covenant. The new covenant in my blood. Here, then, is again a prophecy 
of the meaning of the Passover. For the Passover is but a figure of Christ. The old covenant made with the blood of lambs and goats was but a picture of the, co of the, the covenant made with his blood. And so you have here the most amazing picture. And the verse goes on not only about freeing captives from the waterless pit, but it says, return to your stronghold, O ye prisoners of hope. And to me, that's one of the most wonderful things to realise that you and I are prisoners of hope. We're prisoners, yes. But we've got a stronghold, and in the present difficulties, and the present hardships, and the present troubles and conflict, we can hide in our stronghold like prisoners of hope. We've got a blessed hope. Because we're sealed with the blood of his covenant, we're prisoners of hope. When this world goes up in smoke, you and I have got a blessed hope. See? We are sealed with the blood of the Lamb. To me, that's rather wonderful. It's again a prophecy of the way that the Lord, through the blood of the new covenant, is wonderfully saving men and women. Then, verse 16, we have his salvation. There's a prophecy of his salvation. The salvation of his flock. On, the de on that day, the Lord their God will save them, for they are the flock of his people. And there's a rather wonderful reference here that he will not only save his elect, but he will make a, them a crown of gems which will sparkle preciousness. It's, it, again, you've got it uh, in... If you look at your revised version, you will see that it says, they shall be as the stones of a crown lifted on high over his land, or in the margin, glittering. Upon the Lamb. The idea is of a, of a monarch's crown encrusted with gems, which glitters, as it were, over the whole land as he's carried um, to his throne. And the, again, the idea is one that you get in the book of Malachi, where the Lord says, In the day when he comes, they shall be jewels in his crown. Um, those that have feared the Lord spake oft one to another. Uh, the, it's a beautiful picture, once more, of the work of the Holy Spirit. Having saved us, he is bringing in the preciousness of Christ, so that every one of us has got something of Christ to contribute and something of Christ to express. Now there is again a difficulty in verse 17, where it says, Yea, how good and how fair it shall be, because we don't know for certain what the pronoun is there whether it should be, oh, how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty, or, oh, how great is its uh, goodness and its uh, beauty, in other words, the crown. But surely the whole point is this, his goodness and beauty is ours. That's the point. He has saved us and made us this crown so that it's true to say that it is, oh, how great is its goodness and its great and, and its beauty, because it is the goodness and the greatness and, the, and the, um, the beauty and the goodness of the Lord himself shining through it. Well, I don't know whether we should perhaps end there um, this evening um, and uh, finish the rest of these chapters. Uh, next week I think perhaps we will 
Well, anyway, it suffice it to say that you have here the most wonderful picture of the coming of Christ as both king and saviour. Remember, this prophecy was given at least 400 years before Christ ever came. And therefore it is, in many ways, with all the difficulties that there are in the text, still most remarkable evidence for the inspiration and authority of God's word. You have here in these chapters, as we go on, we shall discover even more remarkable things, the most amazing predictions of the work and the character and the kingdom and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But isn't it wonderful, really, when you think of it, that to realize that you and I have been brought into something which has been planned from before the foundation of the world. To me, that's always a great thrill, to realize that here are things about my salvation in Christ, <coughs> predicted hundreds of years before he came, into which now, thousands of years after he came, I, by the grace of God, and you, by the grace of God, have been brought into. Do you not think it's wonderful? How much more amazing, then, must be God's future purpose for us, his people. If he set his love upon us in this way, if the whole of time has been but the outworking of his saving purpose for us at this time, whatever must he have in mind for us in the future? Surely it is a most marvellous thing to be saved. Shall we thank the Lord?